Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we're coming to you live from Austin, Texas. Well, not really. It's still a strange year, so we're just in our places, still having to watch film festivals in our beds. But, I guess that brings us to South by Southwest 2021. There's been an amazing week of music, movies, conferences, VR, meetings, And since we aren't able to be out there talking over a coffee about all of this, I may as well delve into it right here. The format and accessibility for the films this year was astounding, allowing you time to really engage with the film and not running across town to try and get to your next screening. But really, enough about what the experience was like. Let's talk about some of the movies first off. We got The Thing That Ate the Birds. This is the kind of short film we need to start presenting at festivals and before feature-length horrors. So often, shorts feel only as a way to try and make it into a festival and less about having a visual presence to try and showcase to the world. Not this. Its earthy tones, in its cinematography, they're as much of a player and character in the story as the actors attached. It also doesn't overly try to use horror in the way so many other shorts do and just lets the story breathe for the running time. I hope festivals going forward this year pick this up and use it during their midnight showcases because it's a much needed in the short film world. I'm going to have to give this a 4 out of 5. We run into Plant Heist now. It's a very run-of-the-mill, almost educational video that would be made for a fish and wildlife organization. The topic is interesting to an extent, but I would not say enough to forgive the promo-like quality of this film. One out of five. Now we get to Sasquatch. Produced by the Duplasses, this is one one of the first ones that you're going to have to check out this year. Uh, It's on Hulu. Not sure what it's going to be around the world. I'm going to start with the negative, though, because the animation is really bad. And if we're going a lot of the themes of South by Southwest this year, it's heroin, potatoes, and bad animation. I think the film would have worked better without the animation and and just had people telling their stories. I think it would have have risen it a a little bit higher for me. The documentary is really engaging, though. If you're a fan of marijuana or Sasquatch or Farmers or California or damn Hell's Angels, you are already going to want to watch this. But it's a very nicely woven together story. Uh, The Duplass brothers know how to do true crime dogs. And this limited series for Hulu, it's no exception. It's going to be out April 20th and it's highly worth your time. It's just too bad the animation wasn't taken taken out and, and tightened up a little bit because it it could be running as one of the best limited docs out there right now. I would give it a 4 out of 5. Now we get to Potato Dreams of America. It's as if Guy Madden and Matthew Rankin, even Jocelyn DeBauer, let their homosexual impulses run rampant. It's a hell of a fun time. This young kid named Potato goes from having Jesus Christ living in his house to his mom becoming a mail-order bride to get them to Seattle. It's experimental in the best ways. It has visual elements of Nazi propaganda countering Soviet propaganda to make it hit even harder in the earlier elements of the story. 
And damn, the story is just a lot of fun. And it's a hell of a fun ride. This is the kind of midnight movie we need right now. It's shot in the arm in the way that John Waters had only done to midnight movies before. And actually, we're going to go talk to the filmmaker himself right now. Here's Wes Hurley. Tell me a little bit about Potato Dreams of America and why you wanted to take that kind of from a short film idea all the way to a feature film idea. Yeah, so uh, the feature actually came first. I wrote the script um, many years ago, like eight years ago. Um, And, you know, making a feature is much more challenging, fundraising for it. So um, I ended up getting a grant years ago that allowed me to make the short and the VR short as well. And I sort of envisioned them as being concept pieces to help me get the feature made eventually. Was this something that you maybe wanted to hold on to a little bit, or was 2021 the year that I want to get this out right now and South by Southwest is really that festival that's, that's going to escalate this film a little bit further for me? I mean, of course, I, ideally, I would have, you know, this is a perfect premiere for us. Um, but in terms of timing, we just finished the film late last year. So, um, you know, it, it, it just, the timing just happened to be perfect. I, I didn't have to hold on to the film in any way because it, we finished and then we submitted and luckily premiering it here. How... Um... How much was the uh, what was the film process in the pandemic, or was it all shot before that? You know, we were so lucky. We finished filming right before um, the city shut down. And Seattle, as you probably know, was sort of the epicenter of the the first American epicenter of COVID, and um, we just finished filming, and then the city shut down. So the timing was amazing, and then it actually. You know, editing uh, in isolation is kind of perfect, so I was able to really concentrate on that. How do you feel about Seattle as a city to shoot in? Do you really love shooting there? Um, There's so many um, advantages in terms of, well, for me personally, I've lived there, you know, and created there for, you know, 10, 15 years now, and I, so my community is here, and that's what allows me to make films very much guerrilla style with very little resources because there's such a supportive community of friends and collaborators here for me. Uh, so that's the main reason. And then in terms of the landscape of uh, Seattle and Washington state area, it's just so beautiful and diverse. You know, you can get everything from mountains to the ocean, to desert, to city, uh, rural, anything you need is in Washington state. Um, so, for me as a like a low budget indie filmmaker it's you know for industry wise we don't have much in seattle and we haven't had much um of support or infrastructure to make stuff happen on bigger level um and that's why unfortunately so many films that you think are set in seattle are always shot in vancouver or even portland I'm, I'm I'm a big Seattle guy. <laughs> I, I go there all the time. So oh, yeah. I, really, I, I really love it when there's a, a proper Seattle filmmaker taking advantage of how great that area is to shoot it. 
So I really do appreciate that you didn't shoot this in Vancouver. <laughs> well, I mean, for me, I could have only made it in Seattle just because, again, you know, my community and my collaborators who are willing to help me out on very limited resources um, to make this very ambitious film is I couldn't have made it anywhere else. I'm, I'm glad that you said that it's, I'm, I'm glad that you said that it's ambitious though, because visually this might be the most exciting thing I've seen at South by Southwest this year. I thought it was fantastic. Were there any other visual elements that you wanted to add in that maybe were on the cutting room floor or you just didn't have the budget or time to, to, to accomplish? Thank you so much for saying that. Um, yeah, um, for the most part, I kind of, because I write for myself, I, I envision the film before I even, you know, before I go into filming, I envision it when I write it on a budget that I can't imagine I can make it on. So I kind of try to make my budgetary limitations into a style or an aesthetic. And um, it's always a fun challenge and how to, you know, especially filming Russian and Soviet scenes in Seattle, um, sort of making it into an aesthetic instead of just being sad that I don't have money um, uh, to make it on a larger scale. But it, there's always, you know, once we go into production, there's definitely some things you have to change. So, um, you know, having conversations with my production designer, Kristen Bonnelly, who's just absolutely amazing and sort of figuring out you know, well, we can do this, what do we do? We haven't had to sacrifice uh, a ton from the original vision that I had, I would say. But there's small things that changed. And, but for me, it's always like, I always find it like a really fine, fi a fun creative challenge when, you know, how do you tell a story if you only have this and this? Or do you show this scene if you only have this to work with? Um, I think it's so fun to figure that out. So there's little things like the classroom scenes in Russia and USSR. Initially, they were written like actual classroom scenes. And then we realized it's like in our budget, we can't, we can't recreate an authentic Soviet classroom with Soviet and all that stuff. It would just be impossible with our resources and so I thought about making classroom photo instead and it actually became like a revelation that's much better than if it was a classroom because then it becomes this other visual thing and it's commenting on you know belonging and how you present yourself and all that stuff so it, it kind of ended up to our advantage I feel like and I think that happens a lot when you're trying to work with um, little. <laughs> well, the visual style, it's almost like if Guy Madden and Matthew Rankin, even Jocelyn DeBauer, let their homosexual impulses run rampant. Were you really <laughs> influenced by, by American, Canadian, like North American filmmakers when you started wanting to become a director? Or was it more the Soviet filmmakers that you grew up watching and that's what really influenced you? I mean, I, I have many influences. I, um, 
I discovered Guy Madden after I already kind of developed my own style, and I definitely am a huge, huge fan of Guy Madden because I love, I love silent cinema, and I love that kind of language That's of silent right. cinema. Um, in terms of like, you know, I come from originally from theater background. That's what I studied, so I really like the way that theater embraces that it's theater, which is very different from how most films try to hide the fact that they're films. And so that's one of the things that I always explore is, you know, kind of embracing that this is an artificial constructed reality um, that you're watching. Um, but who else? I mean, like Fassbender, I love those like simple tableau time type of setups where it, you know, you meticulously create this image, but it's a fairly flat image. There's not a ton of movement. Um, I, I, I usually have that in all of my films quite a bit. And especially in Russia, again, in Russian scenes in this film, it was both, you know, a stylistic choice and also a stylistic choice forced by a limited budget because it's cheaper to create a flat, you know, one dimensional set than it is to create a whole you know an, an entire house which afford if you have a you know million dollar budget well what what can we expect from you coming up now i um i have a bunch of things that i want to do i'm writing a screenplay that's based on a true story um actually memoirs by my friend um and it's even more wild than my story. So I'm really excited to dive into that. And then I really want to do more horror because that's my favorite genre. So um, I'm looking to do that. Well, perfect. Well, Wes, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And uh, I thank wish you. you nothing but luck with this film. It's really fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now we get to We Are the Thousand. And from all the things that I've been hearing recently, Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters are just going to start doing their world domination takeover in visual form. We're about to get a lot of documentaries from them, apparently. So what better way to start this onslaught of documentaries coming up from them than this? It follows just a group of people trying to get an even bigger group of people, a thousand people, to be... Uh, <laughs> correct and play play some Foo Fighters it's a very touching story it's good um I would give that a two and a half out of five probably next we get to Kid Candidate it tells the story of Hayden Pedigo 24 year old experimental musician uh he's trying to run for Amarillo City Council after his Harmony Korean inspired spoof campaign video went viral this is the best political uh film i have seen since probably mr america and it's funny because uh if you've seen both of them there there's definitely a connection <laughs> i don't want to give too much away in a lot of these films but uh that's definitely one to check out then we come to the lost sons it's 1960 chicago a baby's kidnapped from a hospital Two years later, a toddler is abandoned in New Jersey. Could it be the same kid? You want to talk about a movie that 
just fucking goes and then just keeps going and it's just an escalation the entire time. It's this. Um, the Lost Sons from Ursula McFarlane is definitely worth your time. And let's listen to Ursula right now. Paul Franzak, where where did you first learn of him and why did you decide this was going to be your next documentary? Well, Paul Franzak, so he had written a memoir called The Foundling, which is about his experiences of the story that, you know, unfolds in the film, which was not completely resolved. Well, it's never going to be completely resolved, um, but it was an incredible basis for a film. And I was working with a company called Raw, who'd done Three Identical Strangers and The Imposter. And they uh, came across him, I think it was like on a BBC online news piece or something. And I think they just thought, wow, what an incredible story, you know, as you do if you if you encounter this story, you know, it, it, it's almost too unbelievable to be true. And um, and they contacted me and they said they, they went out there and did a little bit of tape with Paul and they said, what do you think? And I was just immediately, oh my gosh, yes, you know, I would love to make this film. It's He's fascinating, uh, he's complicated. It's a, a story with so many twists and turns, you know, as a piece of filmmaking, it's gonna be very challenging, which is great. Roll your sleeves up, you know, it's just one of those projects that I think is pretty singular. And yeah, so so I mean, I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't hesitate. I was immediately in and then we pitched it to a few people. Um, Courtney Sexton at CNN Films and me pretty much immediately went for it. Um, there we were, we were off on our way. Well, you've tackled some pretty heavy subjects in the, in the past little bit. <laughs> were you excited to kind of, no kidding. <laughs> were you kind of excited to let loose a little bit this time? Kind of like you did earlier in your career with those kinds of documentaries? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, my, my, my sort of, you know, my resume is quite eclectic, actually, and I've done quite a lot of music and dance and stuff like that, but, and I love music, but I have, you know, in the last few years, and maybe it's the world we're in, you know, I've gravitated towards some quite dark stories, and, um, but having said that, you know, they are often the most interesting stories, and, you know, really important things about our human condition, especially in the world right now, so things like the abuse um, by Harvey Weinstein of young women in the film industry and gun violence. And, you know, I've loved making those films because I've come into contact with incredibly honest, powerful speakers who've been able to speak their truth. So, so that's, you know, that's a great honor. Um, but, you know, the thing about those kinds of films is they, they, they seep into you. you, you, you live them, you know, every minute waking hour and you sort of, you kind of have to give yourself a little bit of a break, I think, afterwards. And when this film came along, not that this film isn't dark and it is traumatic, and but, you know, if you watch it, you'll know that there is also redemption and there's also self-knowledge and there's, you know, closure to a point. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a film about family and relationships and identity. And those are things that are really, in, you know, that really, really interest me and always pull me into stories. Um, but it's not dark heavy dark which I think when you make films about trauma and violence and abuse you know that lingers and I think I just yes it, it was it was a joy for me to go on a journey with someone like Paul who was um you know had a very positive outlook on life despite this incredible sort of roller coaster of a life he's actually had so so yeah 
Well, let's get into spoiling the film. <laughs> Why were Paul's bio parents so nice to their other children, do you think? And did you delve into that a little bit? Did, were you were you asking these questions when you were out there getting these interviews? Right. Well, obviously, I don't want to give too much away. But what I would say is that, you know, there, there, there are people that Paul discovered in his life that are part of his past um, who didn't want to speak to us because they've never spoken to anybody. And actually, he did meet one of them. Um, and he did think that maybe they were going to form some kind of relationship and he would get some answers about what happened in his early life. And I think there was an opening there. And I think then I think the door got slammed shut and maybe it was the siblings got together and said, we don't want to open this can of worms. You know, I think when you watch the film, you'll, <clears throat> you'll realize there are very dark secrets in the family that he uncovers you know, um, and people today living, they often don't want to open that door again. So, of course, that's disappointing for us, but that's, in a way, part of the story, that people bury these things and they quite possibly will never talk about it, um, you know, and then obviously there's the generation above that, many of whom are dead. So it's it, it was it was hard for Paul, and I think that was one of the things he grappled with, that even though he's, he finds out a lot of shocking things... You know, there are many parts of the puzzle still that haven't been put back together. And, you know, the story is not over. You know, Paul continues to search for the missing bits. Um, I hope, I think it would be wonderful if when the film comes out and large numbers of people see it, that, you know, maybe there might be someone out there who remembers something. But it's a race against time. You know, he's in his late 50s. These are, it's a generation that won't be around that much longer. You know, has there been any more progress since the filming to finding his sister? Uh, he's well, he's he's um, as you know, <laughs> in, in short answer to your question, as far as I know, no, um, there are sort of various searches that are going on. There's various. Um, yeah, there, there, put it this way, there is there are people from different parts of the sort of investigative world both formal and informal, who are going to be helping him. And I know that that's, you know, that's his big drive at the moment. But again, imagine, you know, 50 odd years ago when these things happened. It's, uh, you know, it, for us, when the kidnapping happened, it was very difficult, again, to find people who were alive to tell that tale. But we did find them. And, you know, it was remarkable to me how they'd been so indelibly marked by the trauma of what they, you know, the, being in the room when the baby was kidnapped, for example, being the police officer who tried so hard to, to crack the case and never could. And, and those people, you know, all those years later, 50 plus years later, um, are still quite, you know, moved by the whole thing. But as I said, you know, there's not many of those guys left. So his quest is, you know, he's using, I mean, maybe he'll, <laughs> maybe he'll do another film, you know, I know he's, I know he's, he's, he's writing more about it. So I, I hope very much for him. I think he needs, he needs to know. You know, he needs to know, as we all would. When you step into any new documentary project, do you find yourself <laughs> essentially knowing the look of the film as soon as you know the subject that you're going to tackle? Or is this not something that comes along until you start filming and, and you're in the editing room? It, uh, how do you work as a filmmaker? 
Um, yeah, well, it's that you can't control these things. It's really weird. It, it kind of, I mean, it sounds a bit nutty, but yeah, it, it just comes to me when I'm like walking through the park or something. It's really strange, you know, it's, I, I need to start researching something. It's, it kind of comes out of the research, but you know, for example, when I found out that Paul was now living in Vegas, well, has been there for a while, I was like, okay, brilliant, brilliant, because he's a restless soul. I feel, I've only been a few times to Vegas, but it feels to me like quite a transient place where people come, they hope they're gonna make their money, they go, people move in and out. You know, it's a strange city. And it felt very appropriate to me somehow that, that he'd made his life there and his marriage there and his child. So in one, you know, in some sense, he has a very kind of normal life there and he doesn't go into downtown ever, even though we made him. But so, so having that neon and the bright lights and that slightly kind of murky feeling that you get in Vegas, that just felt so appropriate to tell a mystery story, a kind of unfolding mystery crime thriller. So that was one thing. So then when you see all those kind of ye uh, yellow and red and, you know, pink lights, that made, got me started to think about um, the desert and all the reds and oranges of the desert. And that's just outside Vegas. So we could already begin to sort of put together some, you know, very cinematic feeling for the film. And then you've got all the photographs from the olden days, from the 60s and 70s, which have got those kind of Kodachrome colours. So I could see this colour thing already beginning to emerge. And then, you know, his story spans the continent. So it's Vegas... And then he discovers roots in Atlantic City. And then obviously it all starts off in Chicago. So, you know, we had these great locations to kind of set the scene. And I just wanted to make sure that you really, you know, like in Chicago, you're going down the river at night and you've got all these amazing buildings around you, but you're kind of, dry, you know, sailing under bridges and stuff. It's, it's, it's a quite an ominous feel to it. So, yeah, so we developed that partly accidentally, partly by design. Um, and then I worked with my cinematographer, the main cinematographer. It's like, okay, how, how are we going to tell it? And we wanted it to feel, you know, like a movie, not like a documentary, to have that sort of elevated feel because it, it's such a, it's like a fairy story. You know, it's not, it doesn't feel like a real story. And, and even though the emotions are real and the people are real, we wanted to give it that slightly heightened sense of, living in a, you know, almost living in a drama. Well, Ursula, what can we expect from you coming up? What's next for me? Sorry, I, yes. I missed the minute. Yep. Oh, okay. I can't actually say. I've just started working on something, but it hasn't been uh, announced, so I'm not able to say, but it's an amazing story again, a really amazing story with, you know, it's funny, it's sad, it's heartbreaking, it's interesting. Um and then I'm also actually doing a long-term project, a more like a verite project, which is sort of taking me over the next couple of years, which is something very, very close to my heart, very personal. But again, I can't really tell you about it, but it's, uh, they're going to be good. They're going to be good projects for me to work on and flex different muscles and, you know, very different, very different to this one. Well, anytime you want to promote those, feel free to come on the show. I'd love to talk about them. Thank you so much for Thank coming on so today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really great to talk to you. Then there's Disintegration Loops. This is a really nice accompanying film to maybe the most important ambient music ever made. It is a bit disjoint disjointed though because it focuses so much on the current pandemic and not enough on what the music was actually made for <laughs> in the first place, which was 9-11. 
and it does act as a glorified Zoom call. But I will say, if you enjoy that music, uh, you're going to want to see that film. If it, Actually, if you're a fan of ambient music in general, I do think that that's, that's worthy of your time. Uh, I would probably give that a three and a half out of five. Then we get to Paul Dude's Deadly Lunch Break. It's about a charity shop worker who he set on winning this big national talent show. Um, and then five people cause him to miss his audition. So I think you can take by 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 the title of the movie what 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 it what ensues. Um it's Paul Dude's Deadly Lunch Break. But let's hear from its producer, Finn Bruce, right now. What drew you to this film and why now? What a great question. We really are getting stuck straight <laughs> in. What drew you to this project? Well, Nick and I, so Nick, the director, and I had been discussing another project. And the more that we developed it, the bigger it got. And it got to the stage where we were just like, we can't possibly make this film right now. Um, uh, we don't have the access or the ability to make the size of this film. So um, he actually uh, sent me this script that he and Matt White had been developing. It turns out for like 10 years. And... Um, and it was just perfect. Uh, you know, it, 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 it really sort of fit the, the, the dark comedy type of film that we wanted to make um, and also pushed the boundaries on um, exploring social media and everything that that meant as well. Well, and now Concourse picks it up. How excited were you <laughs> that, that that happened? Thrilled, yeah. I mean, we, um, we've had lots of conversations with... Uh, lots of sales agents over the past few months. And, um, you know, I, I really connected with Matt at Concourse. And um, I don't know if you know him, but he's, you know, his, his approach to uh, being a sales agent for the filmmaker was really appealing. Um, his, um, his, his and my um, uh, sort of um, concern over the way that sales agents are heading in terms of taking on too many projects uh, just using the film as a means to bring in their, you know, market overheads and just, you know, pay for what they do. And 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 so many sales agents I find found recently are just, you know, haven't got that passion. You know, bearing in mind we've spent the last I don't know five years giving birth to this um, the, the, this project, and it's so nice to find someone that has that passion for a project. Would you say that? You're, you're excited to be at South by Southwest or were you actually thinking maybe I'm going to hold off on this film a little bit longer and we're going to do it maybe next year when theaters are reopened, that kind of thing? Or is the digital market really where you think you might thrive now? Well, you know, I've as, as a filmmaker, I've uh, wanted my whole life to go to South by. So, it's, you know, it, it, it is sad not to be able to be in Austin and... And, sh- and show the film to an audience and, and be able to vibe off an audience, you know. It's just so exciting to finally get to see a reaction. Um, uh, so it's sad not to have that. But, um, you know, just, just to, be, to, to, to be playing with Sapphire is phenomenal for us in the film. Um, we, we actually decided not to hold off because, you know, you look at how the other festivals are doing um, and, you know, Sundance that, that, that happened, you, you, you look at the fact that big deals are still able to happen. Uh, you know, Apple picked up that film. 
um, and and people are still viewing. And you know, we we we've got almost two thousand tickets sold um, for the screening online. So yes, it's frustrating uh, to not be there in person. But you know, this this modern age of of exhibition and and how festivals are adapting is is bloody impressive. Well, then you you have a horror background yourself a little bit. Do you think that comedy is going to play a really big role in horror going forward and dark comedies in general? Do you think that we're going to come out of this pandemic craving films like this? Well, I, I think there's two answers there. There's the first, which, yeah, I mean, having just gone through what we as a world have just gone through, we need that lighthearted, comedic um, genre of films uh, you know, everyone wants to have a laugh and and and, and find the humour in the darkness. Um, uh, so so yes, but I also think that in America, um, you know, the, the 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 genre, the thriller genre, the horror genre, um, they are moving towards you know very sort of clever horrors and 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 you know elevated clever horrors, whereas the UK market seems to be shifting into this uh, dark comedy horror. Vein. So yeah, you know, I I hope we're we're <laughs> starting a trend, uh, a trend of, of of yesteryear that, that that I hope is coming back because they're bloody hilarious films. <laughs> well, Finn, what can we expect from you coming up now? Um, we so Bellstone Pictures, my production company, have a slate of several projects in development, um, and we're actually just raising a fund at the moment as well called um, Bombouche Media. Uh, our whole sort of idea is to be able to bring the equity piece of financing to sort of first, second time filmmakers, those filmmakers that have this really inspiring voice to share, uh, but often struggle to find that final piece of finance to get their film um, uh, over the line. So we're, we're raising that at the moment and um, have a couple of really exciting projects in the pipeline, but also, you know, wanting to meet and work with um, directors that feel like they've got a story burning inside them that they haven't yet been able to tell. So, yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time, um, albeit uh, operating out of my bedroom for most of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Finn, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you nothing but luck at South by Southwest from here on in. I, I hope this film does well for you. That's so kind. Thank you very much indeed, Robert. We work. April 2nd over on Hulu, this is going to drop, and it's the retelling of a cult and socialist hybrid way of running a business. It's the rise and fall story that isn't really that new or offering us any kind of spectacular filmmaking uh, or, frankly, even story, but it does work in our current landscape of documentaries. Um, if you're a documentary fiend, this is definitely one for you. It, it deals with a lot of cultish behaviors and, and, and how people essentially go into communities and want to be in communities as human beings. It's actually really interesting to watch this uh, now <laughs> at, at this point in the pandemic. Uh, so that is WeWork. And then we get to Swan Song. That is Udo Kier... Just letting it all, just letting it all hang loose. Um, he's a once amazing hairdresser, now in a nursing home. Um, one of his former famous clients, uh, Rita, she's died, and her last wish was for Pat to style her for her funeral. <laughs> 
it says it all. It's swan song. It's Udo Kier giving a uh, giving one of the most. It's one of the better performances from uh, from Udo as of late, and uh, I don't need to talk about it. Let's talk to uh, the man himself. Here's Udo Kier and director Todd Stevens. Udo, I was just wondering, what was your process like to really get into the head of this hairdresser for this role? Uh, well, hello. Uh, the thing was that... Uh, Todd came, uh, first Todd sent me the script, and I liked the script, because after I have done Baccarat and The Painted Bird playing an evil person in both films, it was for me a kind of a very nice idea to do this. I mean, not nice, a good idea. Uh, and then Todd came to visit me, and uh, we talked about it. He told me all the story about because he uh, had met Pat, the real Pat, and told, told me about, I never have been in Ohio, about the town. And uh, then we did a little crowdfunding, successful. And then I went down there to start the movie. We shot basically chronological. I wanted to start in the retirement home, being this old man, uh, sad and folding little uh, paper towels just because to do something because he was so flamboyant when he was in that town. Everybody knew him when he went down the street in very bright suits and a strange head and waving, having rings everywhere. So kind of, uh, I liked it. And I had seen Liberace once, and Liberace had on each finger a ring, and he went to the audience before he played, and he said, he put his hands up like that, and he said to the audience, you paid for it. <laughs> I, I like I liked the rings, and of course, then I like to, uh, it was amazing when I heard that Linda Evans is playing the part, because I'm doing everything for her. It is like my whole going back, accept, accepting the money, going to the town, and I go, and it has all changed. It has all changed where I go. And then finally I decide to do it, and I do it. So there wasn't, there wasn't anything acting-wise to get into it, because it was like, uh, Lars von Trier always says to the actors, don't act. I didn't act. I was an old man lying there, folding, smoking more cigarette, a special cigarette. I had to learn how to hold, hold the cigarette because Todd showed me. And that was, that was basically uh, my preparation. My preparation came, we didn't rehearse. I mean, of course, we rehearsed for the camera that we had to go from there to there. But I, uh, emotion, we did not uh, rehearse. It, it just came. It was a, because it was a very good script. There was no, I don't like it. Can we do it that way? That was never, never a question. Do you feel like films like this are, are most important when we're coming out of the pandemic now? These more lighthearted films, do you think we're going to see you be in more of these kinds of things? And how important are these kinds of films going forward? 
Well, I hope, you see, that's what we said in the interviews before. We did a lot of interviews today. Is I can't wait to see it on the big screen. I don't want to see myself in, in a corner and then I go and get a water and go back, continue. I want to be taken in. And uh, I mean, I said to Todd, if uh, it's not coming soon to the cinema, I will rent the biggest cinema in Palm Springs, now everything open, and invite Linda and all the friends uh, and Todd to come here and be having a party and see it on a big screen. I think a film, there is a reason why a lot of films, if you see, if you see the nomination for the Oscar, is amazing the films, you know, and uh, Frances McDormand is amazing. She's not acting. Frances must have lived in that container for a couple of days. You cannot go step out of uh, your trailer uh, and put the clothes on and go. I know. It's. I think that's real, that because this uh, uh, virus is so strong and amazing, the bad and all people died. It's amazing. So the, the people, it's real to see real films. You don't want to see now Superman. Uh, you want to see something real. And that is the situation of today. When, you know, when I saw uh, Francis, uh, Francis McDormand film, that I said, wow. What a great acting, because she didn't act. You never had the feeling, I do something, she cut her hair like that. You never had the feeling, there you have a star. And I think that people, for a while, it is not finished, for a while, they will see films like that. I'm curious to know, um, for, for all of you, everyone who's in the film and directed the film, part of the film, what was the most challenging shot or scene for you and why? It's easy for me, it's easy. The, the final scene with Linda, because the whole film I'm doing this for that scene. I, I say no, I, uh, I agree being an old man folding little paper towels and, you know, eat bad food and smoke a cigarette with a lady who don't talk and touch her hair. And then I decided and I go on a trip. And the trip, the final moment of the trip is that I do the hair. And that was, of course, what I was doing the whole film, uh, the, the voyage went there. One of the most challenging, um, this is kind of funny, but um, one of the most challenging uh, scenes was the scene when Pat um, does jump rope with the kids, you know? And um, it wasn't because of, it, it was because like, we literally, it was such a low budget that sometimes we were literally stealing locations, you know? So we went and got set up at this great abandoned factory um, and got, you know, got the camera, everything all set up. And like, all of a sudden this guy like shows up in the car, like, what are you, you know, what are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. Which was, which was the only problem we had in the whole shoot with that, because, uh, otherwise my, my hometown, like everybody was so cooperative, but for some reason, this guy, I don't know what his deal was. 
But um, so we literally had to like run off, you know, he chased us off and we had to um, shoot, you know, we just had like kind of a backup idea and we just showed up there and set up and shot that whole jump rope scene in like 20 minutes, you know? So, um, so that, <laughs> that, but it was so fun. It's, it's almost like fun to work like that, you know? Because you just feel really like alive and like it, like you're in this reality, kind of like Udo was saying. Um, that that in a way was the most challenging scene to get in the can, you know. But my two nieces were in the scene, and um, actually shooting it once we got started was really was really awesome. I love that scene. That was a scene that almost got cut out of the film. Um, in uh, early early screenings, we had like the the song wasn't right. People, we had like yeah, we had a different song tempt in, and people were like, "What's up with that?" You know. But I always knew that that we needed that moment, you know, of just like joy, joy, you know. Reality. Yeah. I also like to see Miss Jennifer because I am a big fan of hers. When I see two bad girls or two broke girls and her entrance in each episode, amazing. So that was also a moment when I went to the hairdresser salon and she took everything away from me. So there was also a moment, there's so many moments in the film which are very little, there doesn't, it means more when you know the story. When you don't know the story, you don't follow that easy. So I think there's a lot of amazing, funny moments also in the, in the film. Little ones. That's good. Hey, Todd, I was just wondering, did you ever think that maybe you were going to hold on to this film for maybe a 2022 release? Or did 2021 really just, it, it feels like a, a movie of right now when you wanted to get it out there as quick as you could? Um... Yeah, we did think about we did think about it, but but it, we had shot it, you know, before the pandemic uh, a while back, and you know, we just didn't. I don't know. We just can't hold on to something forever. I, I also think that it's gonna like, you know, it's unfortunate that the the like South by it's it's playing virtually, which in a way makes it accessible to more people, you know. So that that's cool in a, in a way. But um, I do I have hope that um it's going to have this really good timing where like maybe just as the world, you know, starts like coming back to life, um, that we will start playing festivals, um, in, in person. And a couple of people have pointed out to me something that I didn't even really think about, which is that like, I've had three people tell me that when Udo goes to the club and starts dancing, that they start crying, you know, and, and that there, there's something about, um, this man, you know, his, the Udo's character is trapped inside, you know, it's very like, you can't even see out the window, you know, it's just very like, very pandemic lockdown, you know, and here's the moment where he wakes up and gets out and goes on a journey, you know, just like we're all going to do together soon, I hope, you know, so I think that there's, I think it's a really good timing actually now, I think yeah. now is like the time. I yeah. agree. I'm just kind of curious to know what inspired you to write this story. And, um, you know, I kind of understand where you're coming from with wanting to show it theatrically, but also, you know, the ability to reach a broader audience digitally. 
I personally don't think we would have the Oscar nominations this year that we have, if not for the pandemic and more people getting to see smaller films. So I'm curious to know for people who are gonna see this interview online, where's the film gonna go next? Is it going to a festival? Is it going digitally? Is it going to Palm Springs for private screening at Udu's house? You know, like I would love, love to know what the next plan is because I'm sure people are really interested in this film because um, it, it's really different and really interesting and funny and lighthearted. Thank you. Um, I, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed that, um, you know, I, I can't really say at the moment, but, um, but hopefully there'll be some news on that front soonish. But I, we really would, uh, it, I think it'll definitely continue to play festivals um, and um, hopefully we'll, have a good uh, international premiere somewhere. Um, and, and hopefully we'll play in-person festivals and, you know, and we'll, yeah, we, we would really love it to come out in the theater, you know? Yes. So, um, really? so, um, yes. so we can really see those eyes, you know, like yeah. on a 50 foot screen, you know? Yeah. Oh, and, more. <laughs> more. <laughs> the United States versus reality winner, it's a state of secrets and a ruthless hunt for whistleblowers. This is the story of a 25-year-old reality winner who disclosed a document about election, Russian election interference to the media and became the number one league target of the Trump administration. Uh, Language Lessons is the, uh, another new Duplass Brothers film. Uh, not brothers, I should say, just Mark. He gets a gift of Spanish lessons from Natalie Morales and... Uh, they develop a, an unexpected friendship. Definitely interested. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how this film uh, plays going forward. Everything the last year has happened online, and uh, this is a very relevant film. The Hunt for Planet B. This takes us behind the scenes of NASA's high-stakes James Webb Space Telescope, uh, the Hunt for Planet B follows a pioneering group of scientists, many of them women, on their quest to find another Earth among the stars. Definitely a cool little uh, documentary. The Sound of Violence. A young girl recovers her hearing and gains synthetic abilities during her brutal murder of her family. Finding solace in the sounds of bodily harm. As an adult, she, per she pursues a career in music, composing her masterpiece through gruesome murders. Definitely a cool little midnight film. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to want to see this with uh, with Sound of Metal. It's it would be a really cool <laughs> juxtaposition late night double feature kind of a thing. Alien on stage is a bunch of British bus drivers that decide to put on this crazy, amazing <laughs> retelling of Ridley Scott's Alien uh, live on stage. They did so well that they got called up to London to perform it again for one night only. It's a really heartwarming, if you're a fan of Alien plays, British bus drivers, you should check this film out. Then we have The Drover's Wife, The Legend of Molly Johnson. It's Leah Purcell. It's Leah Purcell's play that she made into a film this time around. Uh, it was also... she. She did a play and then a book and, and now the film. It's everything that Alberta Westerns should be. 
Uh, we have a lot of Westerns filmed here. None of them look as gorgeous as this. She really takes time to elevate the landscape and her surroundings in this film. But uh, let's talk to Leah herself. So many times when a stage adaptation comes to film, it seems like it doesn't work or there's just something off about it. It's not cinematic enough. How did you elevate beyond this? Because it really is a beautiful and cinematic film. I, I guess the land was very much um, an influence. And when we were doing the um, uh, the reckeys, it going up to that country and finding all those locations, it just started to, you know, really speak to me. So I just made sure I put that, um, you know, through through the through the film. Um, also the other mechanism was I always had the challenge because I wrote the play, because I wrote the novel and the film, I said, what's my challenge and what making sure that it did um, suit, you know, sit within the platform it was supposed to be in. Um, so I looked at um, Nate and Louisa Clintoff who aren't in the play and I said, are they what brings my audience into Molly's world and they're the fresh eyes in, 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 in this world. So I set those challenges um, for me and I hope that they would pay off. <laughs> Do you think that it helped that you first had the stage adaptation and then the book before you even tackled the film? Or did you think that maybe you were going to do the film even before you did the novel? Yeah, no, we, when I, I wrote the film, uh, I wrote the, the, the play and I did that quite quickly. I did it in seven days, five days for Act 1 and then two days for Act 2. And I gave it to my partner who's the producer of the film and our production company. And I said, can you just have a read of this? It's probably crap. I wrote it too fast, but I just want to see if I'm on the right path. And he read it and come back and he said, it's not crap. Of course, there's work to be done, but we, we're onto something here. And then he turned around and said, and there's a film in this. So I said, I get it. Let me write the play and then we'll, we'll come back. But the film came out of when, when I finished the performances, for me to wind down at night, I'd come home and do another two hours of writing for the screenplay. And what was also beautiful is that I'd go out and share um, you know, uh, you know, there'd be women in, in, in the foyer toasting themselves with champagne or toasting their daughters, talking about their mothers, their grandmothers, and there'd be men there as well would be, you know, in corners on their own, you know, with their red wine, and I'd go over and say, are you okay? And they'd go, yeah, I am. I'm just thinking about my daughter and what the future holds for her. And then I invited everyone to come and, um, you know, uh, sit with me and, and we would start talking and I said, if there was a film, would you buy a ticket? And they said, are you kidding? Absolutely. Because in, in the, in the theatre piece there's only two acts, um, but in the film, of course, you, we, we, we go with Molly as she goes to, to, um, to uh, get her children back and the events that, that fall. So there was a third and fourth act in the film. And when we did the play, when I stopped it where I did, so... The situ- you know, those things that happened to Molly, her little boy and her are going to go and get the kids back. And she says in the play, I'll introduce you to Robert Parson and John McFarlane. And it starts to snow. We take a breath, we step and it goes to black. And my audience will go, no, no, no. 
what happened? And I'd be in the dark going, yes, that's where the film kicks in. So um, so it was, I was really, you know, I was listening to how they reacted to certain storylines and stuff. So I'd be so excited. I'd go home and put a good two hours in, you know, working on on, on, on the film idea, on the screenplay. The Harsh Winter, was was a lot of this staged or were you trying to find areas that that you were going to get a lot of snow for certain scenes? There, there, there was, um, in the time lapses, um, there was still snow up in the mountains, so um, the boys trekked up there and there was a couple of days that we did, the weather did turn and we did, it was cold. We woke up one morning uh, to, to a snow, a light snowfall. So where we could utilise that, we grabbed we grabbed it. And then, of course, um, there, there, there was some fabricated um, stuff as well. But, yeah, it was kind of one of those things we, we sort of put the little prayers out at night going, gee, would it be great if we woke up to a little bit of... <laughs> and then it, there it was and everyone was, go, 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 you know, because we said coming from the city and not from that land, you know, we said to the farmers, what do you reckon our time is? They said, look, if you're not out there early, it'll be gone by 10 o'clock, you know. So it was it was an interesting, gave a bit more adrenaline, you know, when that sort of stuff happened. Are you kind of happy that you didn't hold on to this film till maybe, let's say, 2022? Because you did just get picked up by Samuel Goldwyn in the United States. So do you think that this all was was a good thing to release it this year? Yeah, I, I think so. Look, we were actually trying to release it last year and then COVID, you know, kind of put a stop on that when everything closed down and everyone was a little bit antsy. And I said, you know, we've been kind of blessed. Like we literally finished filming in that country of the Snowy Mountains and we and a fire, the biggest natural disaster in 100 years in Australia in fire came through that 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 land. So we were literally... A week and a half, just we managed to finish the film, pack it down and got out. Um, the scene with Molly and Yarika talking on the, um, on, the, on, the, on the stump and that beautiful haze is actually the, the fires to the north and south that were coming to that valley. Um, so, and then when we, we did pitch a lock off on March the 13th and we were in full lockdown in Australia on the 16th, so it was literally Friday the 13th and we were all in lockdown. And, you know, um, I, and dare I say it, that COVID probably worked in our favour in the sense that we had post houses to ourselves, um, and we sort of could take our time a little bit more and, and, and just go through that process. And, you know, and I believe and I said, look, the right festival will come along and the time will be right and here we are. So, why did, faith. Why did you decide on South by Southwest? Oh, look, we, we the, the the producers, you know, put, put put it out put it out there to many festivals. But I was so glad that South by South picked it up. I just loved that they were, you know, technically savvy for the world that we're living in now, and we're going to get it out there. And I don't think anyone else is quite doing it like they are. Um, it's a young audience. Uh, it's an impressionable audience. Their their um, their their focus is 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 wider culturally, arts, you know, the music genre. And I'm I'm just bummed that we can't be there. I understand why we're not. But what a festival to you know not get to. So 
we just felt that it was it was the right place and they were really enthusiastic and keen and that's just been part of my my journey throughout this whole thing the right people in the right place will come and it, it, it's worked out beautifully we've got a great audience number Sam Goldwyn had picked it up before it even has launched so it, it was and, and everyone in Australia you know the powers to be were really excited about going to South by Southwest so we're, we're really happy we're really chuffed to be part of the team well what can we expect from you coming up Look, I, um, I, I, I love, you know, writer-director for film. I want to focus on that or at least directing um, other films. I've, I've had lots of offers over the, over the years um, because I've been directing for about 15 now, television, theatre, short films, and a lot of people have asked me to do their films, but I wanted my first film to be my story or a story that I could personally relate to um, where and you know if I was going to bugger it up then it's mine and if I was going to make a success it's mine um, and I just I just I just wanted to have that control to steer what I what I needed to make the best film that I thought was going to be um, possible that was going to come from me and to put so much the effort and the hard work the tears the blood you know the effort you have to put in to keep the morale of your team going, if you don't own that story, it becomes a chore, you know, and this was just love, you know, and dare I say it, but hard work, but we, everyone was part of the family. Everyone was listened to, you know, collaboration, and I think I think that comes across. Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you nothing but success with this film. Being from Alberta, we get a lot of Westerns like this shot out here, and they don't utilize the land in quite the same way that you did Australia. So I really appreciate that. I really, I, lo I love the look of this film. I think it's great. I think everybody should go check it out. Oh, thank you, Robert. I'm glad you said that because the film, you know, the, the, the landscape is mighty and it was breathtaking to be up in that country of the Nari, the um, Monaro and the Narigo people. So, yeah, it was pretty special. We've talked a lot about film now, but I do want to shout out all the bands that I saw this year at South by Southwest. There were some really cool performances, uh, all live, or all pre-recorded, but still trying to give you that live experience. Uh, it was... <laughs> It was one of the better festivals for trying to make this a, a, a more inclusive music music portion. But uh, some of the bands that I checked out were the Mysterines, TV Priest, Holy Fuck, Mike Maloney, M for Montreal, Weird Milk, Blushing, Sasha and the Valentines, Memes, Heave Blood and Die, Ice Age, 404 Guild, Chubby and the Gang, Anola Gay, The Chats, and Drinking Boys and Girls Choir. All of those bands, it's all going to be in the show notes. You should check out all of these bands. You should check out all of these films. Uh, if you want to know my full ratings, I don't. <laughs> we don't need to go deep into here. I realize as we're doing this, probably getting a little bored of the giving the ratings on here. I log everything on Letterboxd. It's over there on Robert the Law and Robert Thunder. Uh, you can always catch it there. There's going to be stuff in the show notes. Uh, 
but yeah, let's uh, let's keep this going. Because next we have the Oxy Kingpins. The Oxy Kingpins covers the untold story of how a network of pharmaceutical manufacturers, distributors, and retailers work together to orchestrate and perpetuate the opioid crisis that has killed over half a million people in America. This story is fucking wild. Uh, how easy it is to get pain medication and stuff in Florida and frankly across the United States. Um, this is, we need more films like this, to be quite honest. Uh, it sheds a light on how easy this was to become. It shows how easy this was to become a crisis and it's definitely worth your time. But, uh, enough for me. Let's talk to Brendan Fitzgerald. And Dre Bernardi from the film The Ox Kingpins. Why this film and why right now? Um, I mean, we, you know, Dre and I met, you know, sat down a couple of years ago and talked about, um, you know, she had just started at Young Turks. And um, we kind of just met up and talked about what she wanted to do with the company and what her plans were. And um, I had started, uh, kind of poking around about an Oxycontin story um, as I think literally like half of the filmmakers who were alive in 2017 or 2018. Um, and I had been kind of interested in it and, you know, I'd been reading a lot about the Sacklers, um, you know, and, and Dre and the Young Turks had, you know, they, they talked about, they had this lawyer named Mike who was doing this lawsuit. And, uh, it, you know, initially it sounded like, uh, you know, I, you know, I couldn't really get my head around it. Um, you know, and then when we spoke with Pap, he just was such a great character and he was so interesting. Um, you know, and so they had the lawyer and then, you know, I was able to put together this network of, um, dealers, you know, which was unusual. I'd never, I'd never really seen an Oxycontin piece that had like the full network. You know, we really had Alex and the guy who drove people around and, picked up pills and, and then the guys in Boston, sorry. Um, you know, and we sort of had these two assets and we tried to figure out like how to make a film with both of them, which was, was interesting. Um, you know, and, and so it just seemed like, you know, a, a thing that we wanted to do. And we went and shot, um, a test reel, you know, over the course of about two days in Pensacola. And generally when you shoot something like that, you, you, you come out with like, you know, like, seven eight minute reel like if you're you know if you're lucky and we came out and after like a week of editing we had a i think a 22 minute reel that really worked and it was actually like it, it really it really felt good and it, it was um you know and it, it came together really easily and it just felt like this was a movie that you know we kind of wanted to make and so um yeah and you know as far as like why now like obviously like no one gives you money when you want it you know so it took us a second to secure financing and um you know and then it took us you know a little bit longer to make the movie than we wanted but uh uh you know it, it all came together and it's you know i think everyone's relatively happy and um you know and it, it's a uh, and it's good and you know the you know the thing that i know about opiates and, and heroin is you know is like that stuff just never goes away like it's always you know like it sort of slows down for a couple of years and people think okay 
you know, we're going to stop doing it. And then it starts up again. And, you know, like, um, you know, I, I remember dealing, you know, in college, you know, in, in the nineties in Pennsylvania, I remember dealing with, I had two very close friends who, who were active heroin addicts. And, um, you know, it's just this topic that, you know, for me, um, I've been dealing with one way or another for, you know, 25 years, uh, you know, longer. And so to me, it's just a, a really, it's like something that we just have to, to keep in the front of our minds. And the, um, Jay, Jay, do you want to talk? You, we know when it's late, yeah. I'll just keep talking. Like, like that's the thing that, uh, when I'm tired, I'll just keep speaking. Yeah, no, I mean, you said everything. Um, you know, I just would add that, you know, you have your personal stories. I have a, just a family that has just been hit so hard by this crisis on so many different levels to the point where, you know, I lost another cousin this year to this crisis and I shared the film with my family and I got a call from my aunt saying, you know, when your grandmother died last year, I found Oxy everywhere, you know, and you're just like, you know, it's so deeply personal for so many people in America that um, it's just a story that when we find out new information, like we did with the distributors, it has to be told, right? And for me, it was how do we tell it in a way that is the most compelling, but the most people will want to watch and enjoy, but also just come away from the film feeling outraged and wanting to do something. How shocked were you at how easy this was to, 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 to distribute, to do everything within, within the Florida walls? Uh, I mean, Jay or, Jay, yeah, I mean I'll, I'll jump in. I'll give you a little break, Brendan. I mean, it's shock. I mean, it's shocking how easy it is. I mean, the guys were not doing much work. I mean, it's just in the pill mills and it wasn't just Florida. I mean, we focused on Florida, but this was happening all over the United States in different ways. And so, um, yeah, I, I, it was, it was shocking in the sense that, you know, I just had no idea that it was so hot, like so easy for people to get the pills and to make a profit off of it. And that, and then when you like follow the chain back up and you're just like, these guys totally knew what was going on and they just let it happen. Anyways, Brendan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, 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 the same, like when, you know, when we first kind of started working with Alex and, um, you know, and we kind of put the network together and we, we started figuring things out. Like the thing that really jumped out at me was just like, you know, Alex, when you talk to him, he's like, you know, the thing is like, I, it's no work. Like at Tuesday, people would drop the pills off and I would FedEx it and I would get money on Thursday and that's it. And, you know, you know, there's no, you know, Walter White character, you know, from Breaking Bad, who's like an evil genius. It was just, you know, they were just like guys, you know, who were, you know, Alex, a very, very smart guy, um, you know, but at that point in his life, he'd been using heroin for 10 years. He, you know, drank vodka every day and rode jet skis. And, and that was sort of what most of his time was spent doing. And uh, somehow made like a million dollars, you know, in his spare time. So, I mean, I think that's, that's really the thing. And, and to reiterate what Drea said, this really happened everywhere. You know, for, for the sake of our movie, we really focused on Florida just because that's sort of, you know, what we had developed. And, but, you know, the, the thing, there's so many things that I, I wish we could have gone into more, obviously. But, um, 
you know, Nevada really operated kind of the same way that, you know, Florida did for the East Coast. Nevada sort of operated the same way for the West Coast. So, like, a lot of the pills from Oregon and Washington State were actually coming from Nevada, and they would get, you know, you know, people would buy them in these small-town pharmacies, and they'd ship it to Reno and Las Vegas, and they would they would get sent to Portland, Oregon, or, you know, Seattle. So, you know, a lot of states sort of operated in this way where they, you know, um, you know, like it, it was really happening everywhere, you know, that, 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 um, the ShopRite pharmacy that, that we take, you know, that's in our movie, you know, that place, Safeway. So, you know, Safeway, <laughs> sorry. Thank you. Thank okay. you for letting me, letting me not slander ShopRite. Um, you know, that place, that place you know, sold 3 million pills to like, you know, I can't remember how many people they're like 700 or something. Like it just, you know, there's no way that math works. There's no way. South by Southwest is such a, the, the demographic of it is, is so young. Was it important for you to, to have this film at a festival like that? Or were you maybe going to put it at, at a more older kind of a, of an audience of a festival? Stodgier maybe like an older stodgier audience or what do you mean? Oh, <laughs> uh, even somewhere like venice i feel is an older audience well i mean this film is definitely uh not for a stodgy documentary film audience um we we really wanted the film to be entertaining and i think that it's it isn't your traditional documentary you know it's still journalism we're still telling you things that you haven't heard before we're still getting you that information we're doing it in a way that you know, you should leave outraged, but you should also enjoy yourself while you're watching the film. And, you know, South by Southwest is such a, you know, to me, it's just like, it's in Texas, it's in the heart of America. It really is a a place where, you know, this story being a very uniquely American story right now, um, it just felt like it made so much sense for it to be at that festival. So we're really happy that the premiere is happening in Texas this well. Digitally online in Austin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In in my head for premieres, like South by was always one of the top places I, I wanted it to be because I have always loved Austin. Um and I and I think it's and I and I do think that it's you know, the 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 message that we're telling and the story that we're trying to tell and the way we're trying to sell it is, you know, is uniquely American. And, you know, this this story has a lot to do a lot of the stuff going on in Florida had to do with very unique laws in florida that really created an environment to be people to do that so it is you know in, in some ways a, a very american movie um you know that's and, and and i but i've always loved south by and i'm super happy that the film's there what can we expect from both of you coming up brendan big thing um, i'm currently <laughs> yeah like 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 uh big things like for me like you know like a billion other people in the world like i i started a podcast this year so i've been working on uh, kind of a long-term project uh, about uh, a fundamentalist Mormon family that went awry in the 70s and 80s. And um, we're finished with production in it and we're editing now and uh, it's pretty exciting. Um, we'll probably announce it sometime in the not too distant future. And then um, we've started, uh, you know, since I've been based over here in Singapore, we've, you know, started developing a bunch of properties over here. So, I have a project in uh, India that we're really excited about. And then a, a, a project in um, kind of like a, a, kind of like a worldwide 
true crime project that we're also developing that we're excited about that we'll probably announce um, that we're working on with the local company here. And then, you know, TYT, this is our first feature film. It's our first full-length, long-form thing that takes time to make. And so we're really um, using this as really a launching pad for TYT Productions. And we have some different stories that are in development. We're working with some new filmmakers and really trying to find those stories that haven't been told in the way that they need to be told for whatever reason, right? Whether it's because the corporate media is just not willing to tell those stories because there's too much financial risk for them, or if they're a story that is, um, you know, not popular with the establishment. Um, Our next film is a film about um, progressives versus the establishment, so progressive Democrats versus um, you know, more establishment Dems. And uh, we follow Jenk Uger as he runs for office. Um, and we talk to, we follow Nina Turner, who's this incredible senator out of Ohio. Um, and so that film is in, it's in mostly post-production, but we have a couple different stories that we're following that we're adding to it. So we're hoping to have that out to the world by early next year. Bantu Mama. An Afro-European woman escapes after being arrested in the Dominican Republic. She is sheltered by a group of miners in a dangerous, dangerous district of Santo Domingo. By becoming their protege and maternal figure, she will see her destiny change. Uh, this was the third best film of the festival for me. Um, I highly recommend you check out Bantu Mama. Hysterical is a behind-the-scenes look at women in comedy. It is coming to effects, uh, I believe, very, very soon. Uh, Keep an eye out for that. There's a lot of funny women in that. Broadcast Signal Intrusion. It's set in the late 90s, and a video archivalist unearths a series of sinister pirate broadcasts and becomes obsessed with uncovering the dark conspiracy behind them. This film starts so strong. Uh, It kind of dies in the third act, but uh, it does have a, it's it's a little bit all over the place. There is some really strong moments though. Jacob's wife uh, sees Barbara Crampton give maybe the the performance of her later career. It's definitely a performance that you can tell she's having the most fun in in a hell of a long time. Um, if if you're a big Barbara Crampton fan, Jacob's wife is definitely one for you. Off-season, after receiving a mysterious letter, a woman travels to a desolate island town and soon becomes trapped in a nightmare. Uh, We also had Woodlands, Dark Days, and Days Bewitched. It's uh, a feature length, and when I say feature length, it's (laughs) a good over three hours on the history of folk horror from 1960s to today. If you're a folk horror fanatic, uh, this is this is one for you, uh, Kiralee Jancy, uh, Canadian. She's a writer from Vancouver, uh, Cinemorte Festival. She is definitely somebody that I'm sure you've read in the past. This is her directorial debut. Uh, kind of started as a bonus feature for for a Blu-ray and and expanded into a three-hour documentary. If you're into folk horror, that that one's for you. Uh, how it ends on the last day of earth. One woman goes on a journey through LA to make it to her last party before the world ends. 
running into an eclectic cast of characters along the way. Everybody's in this film. Uh, it was a big quarantine project from uh, Zoe Lister-Jones. <laughs> it's it's cameo galore. Uh, it's a really cool use of making a film during the pandemic. Uh, it was... Of, of, of all the pandemic films, it was uh, it was definitely interesting. Our hashtag J is a reimagining of Romeo and Juliet. It's modern day, uh, keeping the Shakespearean dialogue intact, uh, but bringing in social media communications. Um, it's definitely I, I like this film way more than I should have. <laughs> I'm just gonna say our hashtag J is it's really good. How they shot it on the phone, I think, was really impressive. Uh, they kept the spirit alive and made it really cool and modern. It's it's one that I recommend. The Sparks Brothers is the new Edgar Wright film uh, about the band The Sparks, or just Sparks. Uh, if you don't know the band, you should check the band out. They influence like, everybody. This is the story on them. Polystyrene, I Am a Cliché. The Death of the Punk Icon and X-Ray Spec Frontwoman, Polystyrene, uh, sends her daughter on a journey across the world and through her mother's archives to reconcile their their fraught relationship, frankly. Uh, if you're an X-Ray Spec fan, Polystyrene fan, <laughs> it's, it's guaranteed you're going to be checking this out. Trap revolves around a number of women from different walks of life whose destinies are tied together being all under one siege as the events unfold, their personal stories reflect on far bigger siege that depicts the shackles imposed by a patriarchal society. And then we get to, uh, to recovery. Two directionist sisters have a cross country trip to rescue their grandmother from a COVID outbreak at the nursing home. We don't really need me talking about this. We got Mally Everton, Whitney call and Stephen Meek right here on the film called podcast doing the dual directing. Do you find like it was, it was easier because you were in COVID. Did you find it harder? Um, it's kind of a weird overlap because yeah. it was our, it was our first film. Um, we decided to make it because nothing was going on and it was like the, the playing field was even. So we were like, Oh, here's a shot. <laughs> Like, if SNL can get away with a janky at-home episode, then maybe we can make our first film and people will just assume it's on the same level as everyone else this year. So it was a, it was a gimme year, right? It was, a, it was a do-over year, I guess. Yeah. Morning, guys. Hey, now. How's it going? Hey, Robert. Hello. What, were you excited when, when you heard, hey, Let's let's just go do this this COVID film. And actually, how quick did you decide we're going to go do this COVID style film in in when when the, essentially the world got shut down? Quick. Was, <laughs> I mean, we we had a couple of months of of you know just outright depression. I think along with the rest of the country, it was um, around June when Mal and I were just kind of going stir crazy a little bit. We'd had our our lows and we'd had our, our ways of, of coping with kind of our lives stopping. But then we just, I mean, we, we love, like, we love working, we love making content. And so at this point we just realized, Hey, 
we don't have any jobs right now. We don't have any like other commitments. So why don't we work on some of the projects that we've been wanting to work on that we've been trying to write. Let's just pass them back and forth and, and see what happens. And that quickly turned into, hey, should we try and make a movie right now? Like what resources do we have to make something small that maybe we can we can afford to make by ourselves? We can make in a simple location. We tossed around some road trip ideas. I'd had a, a road trip um, TV series that I had been working on. So we thought like, let's repurpose that. Let's try and make something into a movie. Um, and then it just kind of turned into like Mal had just been watching Locke and the trip and had been very inspired by like, hey, we don't, we don't have to make like, a Marvel movie, if we want to make a movie, there are a ton of ways we can make it like streamlined. The plot doesn't have to be, you know, all these different arcs. Um, let's just keep it simple and see what happens. So, I mean, we, we started writing something and it really felt like it was writing itself. It was really easy. We were, we were bantering a lot back and forth over Zoom and improvising some scenes together before really polishing them. And then during that writing process was when Mal said, hey, uh, festival deadlines are um, in October. <laughs> Should we just like make this? Should, can we do that? And this was, you know, beginning of July at this point. And we were like, oh my gosh, if we're gonna do it, like we gotta, we gotta do it. So um, yeah, it just kind of rolled, rolled, snowballed after that. It was, um, it was a huge, uh, <laughs> it was a sprint basically. We, we wrote it in two weeks. We pre-produced it in two weeks. We filmed it in two weeks. And then Mal got a first cut of it in two weeks. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, <laughs> I don't recommend it, but yeah, it was a quick process. Yeah. And it honestly felt like um, we, we were still proud of it while we were moving that quickly. So we felt like, okay, let's keep going. Do you have anything to add to that, Mallory? Yeah, I mean, mostly that it was, it's, it's truly a process I would, I hope to never repeat. But uh, I also am so grateful that we did it and so grateful we tried it and that we embraced kind of making something instead of needing, needing to make a perfect thing, you know? Um, and that, that speed was our friend, uh, both because it forced, us to, it forced us to forget about all perfectionism and to just focus on getting something done. And it also uh, made us feel like we were, if we were going to, give this message to people that we might as well give it to them immediately. So speed felt like crucial to the process. And yeah, I just hope that's never true for us again. I hope we get to make things slower in the future. <laughs> <laughs> were you, were all of you thinking about how this was going to look? Were you thinking cinema sensibilities or did you really think maybe this is going to be seen by people on their tablets? on their iPhones, on their TVs, instead of on the big screen? Were you thinking about this while you were making the film? I, I can't speak sure. for you guys, but I did not ever picture that anyone would see this movie on a big screen. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I wasn't sure people would see this period. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, exactly, right? We, we were kind of just like, you know what? Regardless of what happens, we want to know we want to know how to make a movie. And this is the year when we finally have some time. So if, if nothing else, this is a learning experience for us. And, um, 
And we just come away having gotten over that hump of, oh, we like need to make a feature. We need to make, you know, because everyone always is writing scripts and trying to find funding and trying to get a crew together. And it just seems like the feature is a daunting myth for so many filmmakers Mm -hmm. that I think we just were like, let's just tackle it. Like, who cares, you know, what resources we have or don't have. And so we did not think about who was going to see this. Um, until we until we started thinking about festivals and then in the middle of filming we did um actually get in touch our producer got us in touch with Soro Films um who gave us funding and really lifted the um the production value of it for sure and so by that point (laughs) I mean when you have an investor then you're like okay well we want to pay them back so let's hope that we get some eyes on this then (laughs) and then once we found out we were in South by that's when we were like holy crap, like, (laughs) okay, we're going to, like, actually get some eyes on this. So each step has been, like, blowing our expectations in the best way possible. Yeah, I'm grateful to the pandemic for that. Like, our expectations were very, very low. We wanted to learn, and we wanted to kind of rip off the first feature Band-Aid, and we have time and time again just been so, so pleased with the results because success to us just meant finishing. (laughs) You dabbled a little bit with the darker ending, but then it went a little bit lighter. Did you ever think that maybe I'm just going to end it here and we're going to go like really fucking dark for no reason at the end of this film? There's a, there's a James A. Caster up bit where he talks about, um, he talks about like his wife and he, right. Just like divorcing or something like that. And then he was like, if I were brave enough, I'd just end my show right there and just uh-huh. leave you all. I'd turn off the lights. You'd find your own way out. <laughs> just leave you with that feeling. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought about that sometimes. But gosh, we we knew for sure. We were like, if anyone is going to feel anything from this, it better be the opposite of what they've been feeling this whole year. Because I just, I didn't have any interest in sending something out that was like, remember this year? Do you want to soak in it a little bit more? (laughs) Feel those feelings again? I was like, no, please just escape. Like, get us out of here. Yeah, I think in future projects, I would love to stick a knife in people's chest and just twist it. But like (laughs) on this particular project, we were partially making it to give ourselves some relief. So we wanted to focus on, is there a version of seeing this whole this whole thing that isn't just like a complete horrible bummer? Uh, is there a way that we can tell a story that somehow feels light even right now? So that was uh, that was pretty that was our our focus the whole time. So we didn't ever really veer off that path. We were just hoping to give people some relief. Yeah. Well, what can we expect from all of you coming up? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping, I'm, my hope is that the next time I want to make a feature, it won't be so hard. Mm-hmm. And so, like, honestly, I think that's already a given just because we've learned so much. But, um, like, getting more contacts, getting more um, people who are just as excited about making things as we are has been just, like, the best process of this for me. Um, I know we're all interested in, in making features, making television. Um, and we have a, we have a, an interest that overlaps like this movie, I think was our Venn diagram of, of all of our interests. Yeah. I'm not. So many things that are like, it feels like the, the 
sky's the limit when it comes to just creativity and and um, there's so many people that are making so many exciting projects. Um, I think the ones that have resonated the most with me and make me feel the most um, empowered and joyful are, are typically the ones that I'm gonna wanna keep trying to um, create, like as silly as it sounds, like Paddington and Paddington 2 are some of my favorite movies <laughs> in the world and, and getting more of that kind of um, positivity and um, lightheartedness, but also very um, kind of human, human connection type stories are, are definitely the things that I um, love. And, and just well-made. Just well-made, yeah. Um, and I think that there's very fun things you can do in comedy that is often kind of genre-based um, in, in kind of like parody ways, but, but you can really just have it all in a comedy movie. So I think comedies are for sure something I'm gonna wanna be making forever. Yeah. I think um, I've been thinking about this this weekend as I was kind of ruminating on the festival and um, the movie and our experience with it and everything. And recovery was really the first time in we and all, all three of us have been working for a long time, writing and acting and doing lots of stuff. But it was always uh, to an end for a specific, you know, for a specific show, for a specific boss for a specific client you know we've done a lot of ad work um you know and this was the first time that we wrote something just because we wanted to write something and uh it's very it's very very electrifying to be able to do that and it's I think it's rare in this industry as well to be able to do something just because you wanted to you know it's usually on commission it's usually uh it usually you're doing it for the money or for or something like that so I guess my hope is that we might be able to keep doing that, even if it's just on the side to some degree or it's in conjunction with other necessities. Like I don't expect to just from now on, like I get to do whatever I want whenever I want, but <laughs> I hope that we've been able to uh, even just open the door like a few millimeters to be able to write what actually really resonates with us. Um, because I think that's when we get the work that resonates with others the most too, honestly. So I, I hope that we get keeping, I get, I hope we, the three of us keep getting to kind of commune with that muse instead of just like the bottom line and the deadline and, you know, all the important stuff that matters and, and puts a roof over your head. But there's like some, some stuff of dreams here happening and it, it's been really fun. And I hope we get to keep, keep doing, doing it. Have you noticed that the industry is changing for the better now because of the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I hope that the world is changing for the better. I don't know if I'm going to sound very Pollyanna-ish, but I'd like to think that we're all getting a little kinder, um, or at least uh, if we're on an upward trajectory. I, I don't know. I know that there's there's a lot of ugliness online, but I do feel like everyone went through, had a lot of hard stuff happen this year. And that usually makes, you know, any form of grief usually makes you more empathetic. So my hope is that that translates to the industry that people, I mean, we've felt a lot of kindness, but we specifically, I feel like are given extra credit for doing, uh, trying to do this during all this madness. Um, but I, I hope that, you know, we're all kinder to each other. We enjoy each other's work more. And I also, I kind of love seeing the interesting, um, streaming disruptions that are happening because people are watching you know like the future is coming and i hope that we 
you know, hope we can stay stretchy and adaptable and keep working with whatever it is instead of feeling like we need to hold on to whatever model worked before. It's, we can't go back. Like the genie's out of the bottle. People have watched a lot of big, big movies in their beds. Can they go back? We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like um, there's there's this um, really interesting phenomenon that Britt Marling and Zal Batmanglish have talked about who created the OA. They um, were talking about how how much they desperately wanted to make something sincere because so much of what we consume nowadays is full of irony. And they said, you know, the whole, um, the whole thing with irony is that it doesn't force you to be present, that you're allowed to be in two places at once. You can be experiencing this thing, but then in the back of your mind, you can be somewhere else and be thinking like, oh, but I don't have to like be vulnerable here. I can just enjoy this as a facade and then I can have like my private self that knows what, what is really going on. And so they've tried to create material that like forces you to be there. It's like, what, a talking octopus? Like what, you know, like all these things that like kind of force you to show up a little bit. And I, I feel like we as a society are starting to get more comfortable with being present because this whole last year was either like, hey, you either feel the uncomfortable feelings or you break down. And so I feel like people are, are starting to confront their, um, their backroom personas a little bit more, I guess. And I hope that's coming through in media too, because I'm all about, I'm all about the like ripping off the irony and let's like have some sincerity in media. And obviously it might always feel contrived to, to someone who's, who's more cynical or something like that. But I know that's why I love to create because I have things have things that I want to connect with people and I want us all to feel this connection when we're watching it together and so for me being present I think is is a beautiful thing that's happening right now you know and I think just just uh just to your original question too I think it's impossible that this pandemic won't I think we're going to have a ton of work that everyone in the world can relate to I think it's going to be really interesting you know there's just all of these artists who created music and movies and books right now and we are going to all get it and I think that that's kind of cool yeah. after the re reception that you got at South by where do you see the film going from from here oh man hopefully like right into people's hands uh, we <laughs> we don't know very much about the distribution process or how long that's going to take but we would love to get the movie to people as fast as possible um because that's what we made it for. It was kind of our love letter to people everywhere because we were isolated and disconnected and wanted to reach out and say, is anybody else feeling insane? Uh, can we laugh together? Uh, can we feel a little connected? And so we would love for it to, you know, meet its end and, um, and end, up, end up with the people at some point really soon. It is still up for acquisition, so. Yeah. We don't uh, don't know any details yet, but we are super excited um, having just uh, partnered with BuzzFeed as our uh, executive producer. So I think that is going to become a reality, knock on wood, that um, once once it does get distributed, that like um, just BuzzFeed has such a such a range of, of access to audiences that that's our goal. Just like as many people who just like need a pick me up, like here you go, like here's a, here's an easy breezy little message. We can all have fun together. Well, I'd like to thank all of you for coming on the show today, and I wish you nothing but luck from this film from now on. It was uh, it was fantastic. 
it was definitely a, one of one of the up <laughs> notes in, in South by this year. So yeah, thank you guys for coming on. Of thank course. You, Robert. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for yes. saying that, and thank you for having I'm us. Glad. Of course. The Demi Lovato film, Dancing with the Devil, uh, it's going to be out on YouTube, uh, I believe, in April. That is a... <laughs> again, there is a lot of heroin this year at South by Southwest. Um, this is no exception. Her story, if you don't know it, even if you do know it, seeing it... Uh, Seeing it laid out in this documentary definitely hits you. We also have Joe Buffalo. Uh, the, it's a short film that came from uh, that came from up here in Canada. It's an Indigenous skateboard legend and uh, uh, some other stuff that uh, I want to mention. We had uh, fucking with nobody, and now we have two more uh, two more interviews before we uh, get out of here. First, we have Jason Susberg and David Alvarado from We Are As Gods, and then. Uh, and then the infamous Malcolm Ingram directing Clerk, which is all about uh, Kevin Smith. So enjoy these next two interviews, and uh, we'll see you in a bit. Is your goal essentially to do a lot of festivals this year? You're going to try to do the full run? I, you know, frankly don't know what the plan is beyond the, we have the premiere, the world premiere, we have a couple of regional festivals, and then we have an international premiere, but you know, David and I were just even chatting over the weekend about like, what, how, <laughs> like, what is the end game here? <laughs> and so we're, we're I, I don't know if uh, the goal is to, to do all these, you know, nothing, don't want to throw shade on say Tennessee re, uh, National Film Festival or whatever, but we're probably going to just do these first couple of spring festivals and then see where we're at with the sale. And so if we sell the movie, all bets are off. But if we don't sell the movie, then perhaps we'll do all the smaller festivals and stuff. But when you can't go, you know, the best part about going to, uh, you know, the Muskegee, you know, regional film festival is that you can go drink beer in Michigan and go swimming in the lake. But if you can't, <laughs> if you can't go do that, I'm just wondering what the value of... Uh, Here's the deal. We're going to just sell it as an NFT and make a million dollars in <laughs> Ethereum. That's that's the new plan. Oh, man. Digital coin watching, you know, other movies <laughs> online. Yeah, this is brilliant. Everything these days has been NFT, NFT, NFT. So. <laughs> yeah. No, it's crazy. I have to say, we we uh, are our, our well. There's a random story here, but our subject went and spoke at the okay. Ethereum conference two years ago, and so this idea had been, or maybe it was three years ago. Anyways, um, uh, and so this idea had been floating around in our minds since like two and a half years, and all of a sudden to see it come to fruition is like weird. Like all of <laughs> like everybody, my mom knows what an NFT is. Like, like that's, <laughs> that's that's the most insane thing about this. Is that Patty <laughs> Sussberg knows. Yeah, she actually <laughs> called it a non. Anyways, yeah, she called. She's like, "Is it non-functional toilet?" And I'm like, "Kind of." Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, why did you guys decide this year, 2021, South by Southwest? Why now? Why not hold the film for maybe another year and do the festival yeah. run in 2022? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Except for we 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 already did that. Like we actually decided on 2020 pandemic hit. So we just completely froze the film and most 2020 films actually showed at digital festivals in 2020. The vast majority did anyways, not all. Uh, but um, so, so we, we thought we were ahead of the curve by waiting an entire year patiently, not going to anything, any festival whatsoever. And, and here we are. And it's kind of the same thing as if we would have released in 2020 is just people are more prepared for it now. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's a good idea. I mean, that's, that's a, a thought that crossed our mind too. Why not 22 <laughs> at this point? So, but honestly, yeah, honestly, like, it's like, we just, the film is ready. The film is good. We want to share it with the world. Like at this point, you know, uh, maybe waiting an eight months could help, but you know, we just wanted to get it out there at this point. Well, waiting any amount of time, why Stuart Brand and why now? Why why do this film? And actually, do you think that being a part of this pandemic is going to help an LSD film in the long run? So, certainly, there's well. So Stuart is a Stuart Brand, this you know enigmatic figure who's changed history many many times and has lived this extraordinary life. Is a timeless character. He's someone that you could release the film. We could have done a story on him ten years ago. It would be a different movie, but it would still resonate. Or even in the 90s, if someone made a film about Stuart and his like attempt to be the world's most, uh, you know, sort of outside the box architectural critic, you could have done that. <laughs> but Stuart is somebody who uh, he's like a fine wine. Like as he ages, it just becomes more interesting and richer and and a, and a better, uh, you know, topic to explore. So we certainly could have you know, we could have rushed the film during the pandemic or we could have waited five years. He's somebody who's lived 82 years on this planet and has lived an extraordinary life. So he, he, is, a, he is a timeless figure. I do think that there is something interesting about the pandemic in that it makes people think about long-term thinking in a way that his mission with the Long Now Foundation and the clock of the Long Now, which is to build that giant monumental clock inside of a mountain to get us to think long-term, the pandemic is kind of nudging us to think long-term because normally we plan a vacation in July. Uh, we, we think about Christmas, where are we going to spend it? We we think about next week's, uh, you know, stocks, or sorry, next quarter's stock or the next election cycle in four years. But we're, we as humans, we're not used to thinking in pandemic time. And so I think we all got a dose of delayed gratification, like we're toddlers, like having to wait our turn. And so I think the pandemic is 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 making us think on a different time scale. Like 2020 is kind of like a lost year. Our, our sense of time, the way the seasons work and the way that the earth rotates around, the sun changed last year. And I think I think uh, I think it helps us understand our unique impact on the planet and and uh, how we interact with time. David, do you have anything to that? No, Jason covered the gambit, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Filmmaking-wise, did, did you have a, a very certain look that you wanted this to look like, or did it kind of just evolve and, and the film essentially took a life of its own in the long run? Did you say the look? Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, so, so, you know, Jason and I, you know, I shoot... Jason does sound, so so it's a very handcrafted cinema what we do, and and that's been the way since our you know our prior uh, uh, three films that we've done together, you know, kind of have a similar aesthetic in terms of the interview styles and sort of how the camera is looking at the world. I do everything on shoulder, you know, not a lot of tripod stuff to be honest, not a lot of like vast vistas of, of landscapes or anything. It's, it's more about the people, putting the camera in the room with the people. And it's hard because how do you visualize an idea? And mostly what we do with these ideas are films, you know? I mean, you know, the first film we did is about uh, a life extension, the idea of living uh, forever or extending youth for hundreds of years, this kind of thing. How do you, how do you show something that doesn't exist? 
like that? And, and the answer is it becomes more about the people who are trying to do these things and are talking about those things, trying to understand what their lives are like and trying to identify with, with their quest. And so that means the camera's in their face as they're living in the world, doing things that all of us do, uh, life, love, all this travel, all this stuff. And so, the, um, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, the look of our films have become these idea films that lives more in the people who are having the worlds of the people who are having these ideas. Well, and then you have the sound by Brian Eno doing the score. W was he somebody that you really wanted from the beginning to do the score for this film? Yes. I mean, we, we definitely set out. We knew that Stuart and Brian were really good friends. They're co-founders of the, the Long Now Foundation. And so that was always the goal, even in our, our um, trailer that we made to try to sell the uh, investment in the movie and try to get investors on board. We used a scratch Brian Eno track. I mean, w like which filmmaker doesn't use Brian Eno, <laughs> like ambient score as temp music. And so luckily we got to temp this music in and then get to, we got to collaborate with him later, which was just a dream come true. He was a fantastic collaborator. And I think uh, we, again, another timeless element of the movie is that we have the score that will long outlive uh, the film and hopefully outlive us because it's uh, it's really evocative, powerful, um, rich texture he gave us. Have you guys been working and, and doing any film projects during this pandemic? Can we expect any anything from both of you coming up? Uh, uh, from, from next projects, you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, Jason and I are always working on the next thing. You know, we, we don't have jobs. We're unemployed riffraff who makes films for a living. So if, the, if we don't have another film, we're, we're in deep doo-doo. So, um, yeah, we have about five different projects that we're developing. And honestly, you know, for the last three films, we've raised all the money ourselves from different methods for different films and, you know, then try to take it to market for sale. Now we're trying to sell it ahead of time. So we're talking to different institutions about um, and networks about the next projects. Well, David, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. I wish you nothing but luck at South by. And, uh, and, and, and I hope everybody accepts the film really well. It's, I, I think everybody should check it out if you, if you have a South by pass. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation. Appreciate it. Excellent. How you doing, man? I'm doing excellent. Are you enjoying your time up in Canada right now? Is it? Are you happy that you're up here instead of the States? Uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's that? Uh, I mean, I wish... I wish... Uh, I was in America because the vaccines are happening a lot faster, but... Um, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I love Canada. I love the States. I love both places. Canada is where I am right now, but I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to America. man. I, I really love the American South. So it'll be nice to go back there. I feel like I'm in the same boat as you. Cause I'm also in Calgary and I would love for the vaccine to be rolling out here as it is in the States, but yeah, Calgary's great. Calgary, I love Calgary. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not too bad. I've I've had I won a, I won an award at your gay film festival in Calgary at Fairy Tales. Excellent. I am a Calgary award winner. I am a I'm a a notable citizen of disrepute <laughs> from, from Calgary, Alberta. Actually, our investors. Our investors are from Alberta. 
This are, movie was funded out of Alberta, and I'm not even kidding. Really? <laughs> so we're out of Edmonton. Uh, a concert promoter and a weed uh, owner. I love it. Uh, are the guys who founded this movie? Yeah, from Edmonton. I I love it. Speaking of of film festivals, though. Well, just speaking of film festivals, though, why did you decide on South by this time, and it, maybe instead of somewhere like Sundance, where both you and Kevin have 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 had a lot of success in the past, or did you think that after you premiered Bear Nation at South by in 20, 2010, I, I think it was, did that more than become your festival now? Well, I didn't just premiere in twenty ten. My first, my first big festival premiere in my life was at South by Southwest in 1997 where I premiered Drawing Flies and Kevin premiered and Kevin played Clerks. So I have a old, I have a long time really, and a small town gay bar like I've had a lot of movies play. Um, Sundance isn't really my I mean look Sundance is an amazing festival and does a lot of great things for a lot of people and it's a big thing in somebody's career and I'm so proud I've been there but it's a fucking film festival in a snowstorm like <laughs> if you're looking at practical purposes it's, it's a film festival in a snowstorm and back when I first started going in the mid 90s like Sundance was really great it was really high energy like everybody get into parties you could show up with a gang you just had to know where to go it's so corporate and like, it's just so Sundance is really big and it's a big corporate motherfucker and great for it and it launches careers but um i i like i like south by i, I have i have a um i really like the, the i like the programming team i like the staff i've always had a wonderful time there so um yeah i don't have the romantic connection to sundance that a lot of people do and kevin you know you know, Janet, you know, Kevin and Janet are, are, are really close. So, you know, it was nice to have, you know, uh, you know, to, to show a Janet's festival. Like, mind you, like, we still had to go through the regular, rigorous process of screening. Like, it wasn't like, come on! You know, it was like, we had to submit our movie like everybody else. Like, we had to, like, we only, we had notified probably later than most people. Like, Janet is very fair to all filmmakers in the sense that like she's not like it's it's she's not big on favoritism much to my chagrin i would have liked a little more i'm just kidding but you know <laughs> it, it's step by southwest is a great film festival and that's why we played it were you really Proud excited to to go out and, and make this film with kevin and because you have said in the past that maybe your relationship has maybe run its course so to reconnect and and, and get to spend some time with Kevin again. W was this cathartic for you a little bit? I want to, like, our friendship, like, look, Kevin is like a brother to me. Like, literally, like, Kevin is my family. Kevin is part of my family. I'm part of his family. And we fight like brothers. It's very personal. It gets very, very personal because, you know, we've invested a lot in each other, a lot of time. You know, I mean, we, we've spent a lot of time together. We've shared a lot of very, very, very intense personal moments together. Um, so it's very, you know, it, it's it's just you know, it's it's sometimes it's hard. Um, you know, like look, maintaining any kind of 
relationship that like over a duration of time, it goes through different, you know, it, it goes through different periods. Like that's what relationships are. That's part of the growth of a relationship. And, you know, and a, a, a strong relationship could withstand a lot of shit. And like there's times like, you know, there's times where I won't speak to Kevin for two fucking years because he's done something that pissed me off so much or I've done something that pissed him off. It's just like, I, I'm not, I don't want to deal with you right now. On top of that, it's complicated because Kevin's really famous. And like, but he's also a human being. Like he's also my friend, but being friends with a famous person is complicated because they see the world differently. Like people approach Kevin and, and weep. You know what I mean? Like people, all, he's constantly reminded how great he is. And I'm not saying that Kevin has a big ego, but essentially that that kind of adulation, it it, 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 it kind of like, um, it impacts your, your viewpoint. Like Kevin's done a great job at keeping very, very, very kind of, you know, keeping grounded. But it's still, it's still complicated. So, you know, but, um, you know, it's 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 just a friend. Like, look, we've known each other for fucking ever, and we'll, we'll know each other like for like. It's just like neither one of us is going anywhere, and like you know, I'll always be like. There's literally times where I've wanted to fucking kill him, and there's times I'm sure where he wanted to fucking kill me. But you know, I I think that's relationships. No, so to answer your question, like. Making this documentary, it was just kind of, it just made sense. It was 25 years, but even me, like we thought making this movie and it's so funny cause we, you know, we just did a Q and A and like in a Q and A you want to kind of diffuse everything because there was a lot of tension, but me and Kevin thought about some heavy things. He was the subject. I was the filmmaker. We both took our roles very seriously and we, and we clashed and you know, certain things like you know, Harvey Weinstein, like, I didn't feel as a filmmaker, if I'm making a documentary with Kevin Smith, I feel the Harvey Weinstein thing is way too complicated to address in a little fit. Like, I, I, I just didn't, I, 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 I'm not a good enough filmmaker to breezily cover Harvey Weinstein, you know, that, that atrocious saga in, in this kind of, like, already growing long documentary about Kevin. So, and I also, through my relationship with Kevin, I know what Kevin knew. Like Kevin, like, Kevin didn't know, like Kevin didn't know the dark stuff. Like we all knew that Harvey Weinstein was a piece of shit. We didn't know what kind of piece of shit. Like we didn't like, the word rape, I, you know, is not something you heard. You heard he was cheating on his wife. You heard that he was a fucking scoundrel, you heard this. But rape, like it's a, it's a big leap from scoundrel to rapist. I, you know, we all knew he was a scoundrel. We didn't know he was a fucking rapist. So, I, knowing all that, but Kevin was like, look, like, this is part of my story, and I feel I have to address it. And I said, Kevin, like, no, I don't want to address it in this movie because I think that it will belittle the subject to basically do a, 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 a shortened version of the story and try and, like, you know, when, when I make a movie, I try, when I make a documentary, me and my editor, Sean Stanley, try and weave, it, 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 it's a, we weave it. You don't want to stitch something together, you want to weave it. And I felt that having Harvey Weinstein in there would have just been like stitching, and it, it would have been like, I don't, I don't, I didn't, I didn't know what it was serving. But Kevin felt very, very strongly about it. 
So in the end, it's Kevin's documentary. Like, we, I held out for a fucking year. I was like, I won't do it. Finally, I was like, fuck it. Okay, let's film it. And Kevin, to his credit, you know, delivered a monologue. And my editor, to his credit, found a way to put it in. And there it is. But there's an example of us fighting. But when we talk about it, like, in Kevin's mind, like, I should have come to that sooner. It took me a year to come to that. You know what I mean? Because I was, I felt very strongly about my opinion, and I wasn't going to take it lightly. Um, and Kevin felt very strongly about it. So that's a great example of us logging horns. And now, and now in a Q&A, we simplify it. Like, you know, you, you make it all fun and stuff. But it, it, it was nasty. We were fucking furious at each other. I didn't feel like I didn't feel he was taking me seriously as a documentarian, and he didn't feel I was taking him seriously as a subject. So we had those fights, and they were nasty, and they were fucking like nasty. We both held our guns. Finally, like you know, it, it was just like I just. So there you go. <laughs> well, I'm 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 curious. Are you are you happy that Kevin stuck to his guns on that? Do you think that it works within the context of the film the way that it is now? Yeah. I'm fine with it. I, I, I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Like, I wouldn't have put it in. I literally wouldn't have put it in if it didn't work. It, maybe it's a discredit me as a film. I basically, like, I didn't want to derail this entire, which, like, it's not a puffy documentary, but it's not, you know, I'm not doing a deep, because there's no, like, Kevin doesn't have a lot of fucking deep, dark fucking things to get into. It's just like, Kevin lives in public. Like, it's so funny. Like, one of the things that in some of the reviews I've read, people are just like, there's nothing new here. And it's just like, try and find something new to say about Kevin Smith. It's fucking hard. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, like, was it hard to essentially make a documentary on somebody that is so public? I didn't find it hard. I think that maybe some reviewers are like wanted some more, and I'm like, hey man, like it's a, it's a, I I don't know I don't know what 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 riddle they wanted to unlock about Kevin Smith. Like he's pretty much the man who is. What I wanted to do was tell a story. Like you know, I felt it was his 25th year. I felt he it was worthy of telling the story, like of documenting the 25 years. And just having the voices of the people involved in the story, I'll tell it. Just just to have it on record. You know what I mean? So I, I, I just felt it would be a nice thing to document. And that's and that's why I did it. Like it was like literally, it was all about an anniversary. It's like twenty-five years is coming, let's go to the last twenty-five years. Like and the problem was is like uh, Phil Benson did an incredible documentary um, that's on the clerk's ten bits, um, called the snowball effect. And that fucking documentary is incredible. If nobody's seen it, like, everybody should see that documentary. And it's just like, not like that. Not only does that movie give me a high bar as a filmmaker to kind of reach that kind of like, you know, to do something that good, but also he covered all of Clerks so well. It's just kind of like, okay, I, I don't want to retread. So, like, a lot of Kevin's stuff has been covered. Like, essentially, I wanted to do. A trip tech guide through Kevin's career, a journey through Kevin's career the past 25 years. And when I look at it, I feel I succeeded. I'm very happy with the film. I, I, I if I, you know, I, I, it's kind of, I think we have some interesting voices, 
I was very, I, I didn't want it to be a yearbook. While I wanted it to be uh, like a, a triptych and a journey through his career, I didn't want it to bring out like, you know, the usual suspects. That's why like, you know, Penn Gillette, who basically, he doesn't just have a tangential relationship with Kevin, he's got a very real, like, you know, Penn and, you know, Penn and Teller is very much an, it's, it's one of the inspirations of Silent Bob. Like, a lot of Kevin's uh, sensibilities come from, you know, uh, Pendulette. Like, you know, Pendulette is definitely an influence. So to have him talk about it, but not only that, Pendulette came and helped save Kevin's life. You know what I mean? Like, Pendulette is the one that once Kevin had the heart attack, Pendulette. Um, Uh, Penn Gillette came and um, and introduced Kevin to a new diet. Well, I was going to ask, there was a lot of influence within the film having like that amazing interview with Richard Linklater, which I think is really funny within within the film. W- was that your original intention from the very beginning was to have yeah, as many just- influences as possible in the film? I, I, no, not as, but just the right one. It's like Richard Linklater, I begged to be in the movie. Like Richard Linklater, like literally, I, I chased him down because I feel Richard Linklater is a sometimes reluctant part of Kevin's lore. And I think Richard Linklater himself is probably just sick of the story. You know what I mean? Because Richard Linklater very much has his own career. He's got his own thing. But he's very much, you know, connected to Kevin. Because of, you know, that, that slacker screen. So, like, getting a, getting the privilege to talk to Richard, he was generous enough. And he's got, like, I went to his compound. Richard Linklater has the, like, Richard Linklater lives very quietly, but is, like, he's got a compound outside of Austin. It's one of the most fucking impressive things I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, it's, 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 it's incredible. Like, he's literally got a compound. It's incredible. Acres and acres, and he's got like yurts and fucking houses and all this stuff. And he ha- he brings in filmmakers, and he does all this. And he's very quiet about it. You don't hear about it, but like, it's 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 like the the life that Richard has built for himself is incredibly impressive. He's and he's such a generous guy. Like he gave me his time. Just a very generous sweet man. But I chased him. Like I knew that he had to be in the movie. He had to be. In- like, there's certain people who had to be, like, Scott Moser had to be in the movie. Richard Linklater had to be in the movie. You know what I mean? Those are people that just, like, Stan Lee was so, like, was so, was very much on the want list. I didn't know if the Stan Lee interview was going to happen. Because Stan Lee was, like, everybody knew that he was, you know, he was at the end of his time. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, like, you know, I like, I, I don't want to fucking harass a dying man and be like, you know, could you be in my fucking movie? But I didn't want to exclude him. You know what I mean? It's just, it was a complicated decision. I didn't want to exclude him from the movie. But I didn't, you know what I mean? It, that was a complicated decision. No, but, but like I approached him and he wanted to be in it. So that it was wonderful. Like literally, he was like, I absolutely have something I want to say. But I, I like Stan Lee, I did not push. I was like, please do it. And he said, okay. Well, Malcolm, what can we expect from you coming up? 
I'm going to do a documentary on Bruce McDonald, Canada's own. Um, that's my next thing. I love it. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah, fr- I, I'm friends with Bruce, so I'm I'm really excited to hear that. There you go. Well, Bruce is like basically as Bruce was to um, as Richard was to as Richard was to Kevin. Bruce is to me. Like Bruce was the one that when I was young and I you know I saw Roadkill and saw all the fun stuff he did at the Toronto Film Festival. Roadkill and said he was going to buy a chunk of hash with like Bruce. Bruce was my kind of like Bruce was my kind of rock and roll. So um, after making this, I was like, I was thinking after making this movie, I was like, what the fuck do I want to do next? And I was like, why don't I tell the story about like my, like my my you know my, since Bruce McDonald is, is that. So yeah, so and, and uh, it's gonna be my first. Well, it's gonna be my second Canadian movie. It's Winnipeg and this. Well, Malcolm, well, there you go. thank you so much for coming on the show. It really means a lot. When you're done that documentary, you're welcome to come on the show mm-hmm. whenever you want to, to promote that. I'm really excited to hear that you're doing the Bruce McDonald documentary. So, But thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, man. It was, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. There was also the conference part of South by Southwest. Uh, some things I got to check out that were really informative and they should be online for a little bit so everybody can go check it out. Uh, film distribution in an increasingly digital age, understanding the motivation behind extremism, eyes off the road, Universal's drive-in uh, car VR, which is all about uh, Bride, of, Bride of Frankenstein being in cars at Universal. Uh, if you haven't seen the trailer for that, it looks really, really cool. Uh, we had Behind the Lens with Rising Cinematographers, Social Justice in a New Era, Judas and the Black Messiah on Art and Activism, From Moonlight to the Underground Railroad, uh, that was Barry Jenkins and composer Nicholas Bertel. There was a conversation with Evan Smith and uh, former President George W. Bush. There was a Solar Opposites table read. Uh, if you haven't checked out the show Solar Opposites, I think it's so much better than Rick and Morty, so... Uh, that's definitely one to check out. AI will not solve your Nazi problem. And yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, it was weird doing this. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Uh, and maybe by the time that I figure out how to do podcast uh, remotely <laughs> covering a festival, we'll be back in person. And uh, honestly, I would love that. Uh, I hope I do see everybody next year at South by Southwest in Austin live and we're all there and enjoying the the films and the music and the atmosphere together as a group. Uh, we don't know where we're going from here. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this though. I uh, I tried to make this cohesive and, uh, and, and enjoyable and fun. It definitely made it a little bit easier that you're not running around everywhere uh, during the festival, trying to grab interviews and everything else, trying to get reviews down. Uh, but in some in some respects, it was uh, it was a hell of a lot harder to be to be quite honest, a lot harder to track people down and everything else. So uh, I I do hope that you enjoyed. If you have any feedback, let me know. Uh, follow follow the podcast. We're we're going on crazy journeys. Uh, I don't know what's next. You don't know what's next. Anything is possible for anybody that hasn't listened to this before. And this is your first episode. 
there is a huge back catalog film music politics entertainment uh art it's definitely somewhere that uh, south by southwest audiences are are, are going to like my content is is very directed towards you and uh for all of my for all of my people that listen on a regular basis thank you uh keep spreading the word uh let's grow the show let's let's get some bigger better guests this year and uh thank you there's also Justine Bateman's Violet. Uh, it's Olivia Munn listening to her inner voice. It's a very cool little film. It's going to be one of the most divisive of South by Southwest, I'm sure. And then we get to uh, then we get to the film of the festival. And frankly, I'm not going to do a review on it. And I'm just going to kind of put a call out to Megan Park, the the filmmaker behind it. Uh, the Fallout won the Audience Award. It won the it won the critic uh, it won the Jury Award. Um, the Fallout was above and beyond every other film this year at South by Southwest. Um, I I, I want to do a deep dive into it. So. Uh, Everybody check that film out. Get that movie on your radar immediately. Uh, it's, it's, it's top two best films of the year so far, hands down. And uh, Megan, I would love if you came on the show. Um, if anybody knows her, reach out to her. Um, that, it'd be amazing. I, I would love to do a deep dive on this. We're already at like well past two hours on this episode. It's going to be another hour just on the fallout. So, uh, there's going to be more to come on this movie. Trust me. This concludes our broadcast day.